You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Hey listeners, thank you for pushing play on this week's edition of On the NBA Beat. I'm your host, Lauren Lee Chen, here as always with my co-hosts, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. The NBA All-Star Weekend is almost upon us, and we're lucky enough to have Casey Sager, daughter of the legendary NBA personality and sideline reporter Craig Sager, here today to talk about her favorite All-Star memories and also the state of the NBA as we enter the break. Casey, who's also a contributor for B-Ball Breakdown and a member of the stat team at Turner Sports, has been a lifelong lover of basketball, her passion exemplified by the time she tried out for and was named first chair bass clarinet in the Georgia All-State Orchestra, but skipped out on that opportunity to attend the All-Star Weekend in Atlanta that year. Hey, Casey, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. Really, thanks for making the time to talk with us. I know you have a lot of podcast appearances that you were doing this week. And before this call, you said you were working on the speech that you and your brother are going to give at your father's induction into the Atlanta Sports Hall of Fame Friday night. Congratulations to him and your family on that honor. Just speaking for the three of us here, he's had a tremendous impact on all of us growing up watching the NBA. So thanks for making the time for us again. No problem. I appreciate that. We're about to go into the All-Star break at the NBA, and there are a lot of really interesting storylines from the first half of the season. One particular one is, I think the MVP race this season is as hotly contested as any other in recent memory. There are a lot of players who have good shots at that, putting up amazing individual seasons and team seasons. Can you just talk about who your MVP frontrunner is right now, or if you want, maybe your top three people. I mean, there are definitely a few guys in the conversation. I would find it pretty shocking if it ends up being anyone other than Harden or Westbrook. I personally would go with Westbrook just because, I don't know, I obviously respect what Harden is doing this year. It's insane. Um, Like, I would enjoy watching a game where Westbrook goes off more than I enjoy watching one where Harden does. I just like Westbrook's game better, and he obviously has less help there. And just, he's a crazy person, and I love it. And I have a thing for, like, really angsty players, and I don't know. But at the same time, if he doesn't get it this year, then that just increases the size of the chip on his shoulder for next year, and that can only be good for the NBA. Yeah, I think that's the general sentiment around the first half of the season, either Harden or Westbrook, especially if Westbrook is able to keep up his triple-double pace for the rest of the season. I think something that might hurt him as we get later on in the season is where OKC might rank seeding-wise, because it's pretty rare to have an MVP come from like maybe the sixth or the seventh team in the West if OKC ends up there. And I think as the season goes on, you'll see other names popping up, like Aquai Leonard might get his name higher up in those 
discussions or Kevin Durant even or LeBron James if the Cavaliers don't fall off, which we'll talk about later in the show. Someone else that this year hasn't gotten his name into the MVP talk yet. Someone who earlier this season you saw play in person for the first time and when asked on Twitter (laughs) about who your favorite player in the NBA was, you said Giannis Antetokounmpo. Oh yeah, all time. I'm already comfortable saying like all-time favorite player. Yeah, he's a great guy. I know you loved his tweet about the first time he had a smoothie. Gosh about him for a bit. I just, I mean, I would take a bullet for that man. I, he was one of those guys that I got like super excited about right when he was drafted. And I was just like shoving him down everyone's throats for like the first couple of years. Like Giannis highlights are the best highlights. And as much as I adore him and as much as like, I've always known that he was going to end up like being a really, really big player. I didn't even expect it to happen this year. I thought it was maybe going to happen next year. So it's really cool to see him already taking that big of a leap. And like, he's still, he still has so much more potential, like so much more room to grow too. It's just, he's doing things out there that are like physically impossible. Like the velocity that he gets like from his extended arm, it shouldn't physically be possible. And it like hurts my brain a little bit sometimes to watch him. I think Giannis, what he's doing is extra exciting for a lot of us who feel like we were early adopters and we we discovered him before the casual fan did. Because really now you see his numbers are through the roof, but he's gradually improved over the last two or three seasons, all aspects of his game. Was there anything that game that you went to see him that happened that sticks out in your mind? Um, there weren't any necessarily like huge, like epic moments, but I mean, it's just, he's so much fun to watch in general. And he just he was, did honest uh, you know, things pretty much. Yeah. Like that's the thing is that it's hard, like, you can't even like some of it feels so mundane at this point, which I feel horrible saying, like, I feel like we're going to start taking them for granted at some point. It was fun to watch him during the shoot around before the game though, just like shimmying and dancing out there. And just, he always has like the hugest grin on his face. Yeah. One and thing, it's so cool. You know that, like, he's just so freaking excited to, like, be an all-star. And I'm so excited for him. Like, I cried. I legitimately shed a tear. <laughs> I wanted to bring up his teammate, Jabari Parker. We're all really disappointed about the recent news. Last week, he tore the same ACL, the left one, that he did 26 months earlier. And he was having a career year. Just as Chris Middleton was returning for the Bucks too, what was your initial reaction to the news? And just help us contextualize what that means for him and the team in general. I mean, that was a huge, huge, huge bummer. It was going to be really exciting to see. Like, Obviously, they're not a contending team yet, but they have a lot of really interesting pieces. And Parker's just a freaking beast out there. Like, I don't think I realized how strong he is. And there were just moments where I was blown away by just, I mean, he was just being a grown-ass man down there. Um, and I don't know, I feel like this whole new generation of players, like we're kind of starting to see all of the injuries and how they're coming back from them and like realizing who's going to end up being like more injury prone than others. And that's definitely worrisome that it's the same damn injury. Again, I'm bummed out. Probably the two closest parallels, but you never really want to compare any one player to another because injuries are just such an unpredictable thing. But more recently, Derek Rose suffered a lot of knee injuries and also Grant Hill to go farther back. He was never the same guy that he was, but 
ended up having a tremendous career nonetheless and is also at Turner Sports, but that's besides <laughs> the point. It's sad about Jabari Parker. Two years ago when this happened, the Bucks were able to bounce back, and they've been winning some games lately, even though it's too small of a sample size. So we'll monitor that situation, but we obviously have to ask you about all-star selections with All-Star Weekend coming up in New Orleans. There's always talk every year about All-Star snubs. To me, how I define a snub is someone who's deserving of being in the All-Star game, obviously based on his stats during the season. But I think the important second element to that is that you can actually pinpoint whom should be replaced, which player was less deserving than the person who you feel was snubbed. In your mind, were there any snubs this season? I was really hoping that Embiid would get in there just because I thought that'd be a lot of fun to see. And I know that a lot of people, especially the way that you brought that up, like your definition of a snub, um, it kind of hurt because I feel like a lot of people were saying that he was snubbed because he was more deserving than Paul Millsap, just because Millsap's numbers had been a little bit quieter lately. I don't know. I mean, I know there's obviously an argument for Beal being in there instead of Mello. Um, Do they have to replace Love with a front court player, though? I don't think so. I think that it, I, it's I up like to their discretion. I think Silver can name anyone. Yeah, because ended up. I wouldn't have been surprised. Maybe earlier on in the year, if Porzingis would have gotten in, I think that if the Knicks weren't such a circus right now, fans would have maybe voted him in. I feel like they were. I don't know. Just like in the off season, um, I know the Knicks had more bets placed on them. Uh Um, to win the championship than any other team. And I know, obviously, that doesn't mean everyone thought they were going to win. I know they had great odds on it. But I thought that fans might actually vote him in. Um, But I know that they're obviously not not super, like, engaged at this point. So, Yeah, the reason why I asked it like that is because talking about a particular position, like, say, the point guard, it's stacked all across the league. And there are guys like Damian Lillard, Conley Jr. also is another example. It's just so difficult at certain positions to make the All-Star game. And even if you have a tremendous season up until that point, there's a good case to be made that you can't take anyone off. So there's not really a spot for that guy. So I, I think that's difficult. Some people have mentioned possibly taking off DeAndre Jordan. Rudy Gobert gets overlooked often just because he's so dominant on defense and doesn't turn heads as much on offense. Carl Anthony Towns also didn't make it. Embiid is so exciting, his persona on and off the court. I think that that is another reason probably why a lot of people were disappointed. No, he just wanted it. I think that's why it's it's a little silly that people are still acting like the All-Star game doesn't matter or that fan voting doesn't matter. Like when Westbrook wasn't named a starter and people are like, well, he's obviously going to get voted in by the coaches and players. But it does matter. Like, the fact that these guys always opt to play. Like, nobody – people don't show up to the Pro Bowl. Like, nobody gets super excited about, you know, MLB All-Star Weekend. Like, this does matter because it matters to them. And I don't know. It's just – it's such an exciting weekend. I'm pretty stoked to watch it. I haven't really been watching as much basketball recently as I usually do. Just yeah. been a little heavily not getting to see my dad out there. But – um yeah. So I've been trying to, plus I've been <laughs> overloading myself a little bit. So I've been trying to maybe take a step back and actually just watch a game and try to enjoy it instead of trying to analyze the crap out of it. Um, no, I, I can I, definitely I, I understand. I'm excited for like the last leg of the season. 
<laughs> yeah, I agree with you. The All-Star Weekend in the NBA is the best thing in all of sports, even if Major League Baseball counts that for a home field advantage, which they certainly should not. So your dad really appeared to love the annual All-Star Game weekend. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe 1988 was the first year that he went and covered it, and he was able to do that every single season, unfortunately, except for 2015, but then against all odds, was resilient enough to be able to get back there last year with your half-brother and sister serving as ball boy and ball girl. Is there a favorite memory or story that he liked to tell you about All-Star Weekend over the years? I mean, he just always referred to it as his Christmas. Um, He has in his basement a basketball signed by all of the different, like, challenges, uh, winners and the MVP from every year of the All-Star game, which I don't know how he did that. I know it says on your credential pass you're not supposed to get autographs, but apparently that didn't apply to him. But, no, I mean, it's, it's going to be really weird without him there. They're actually, they flew my stepmother and half-siblings down there again for this year. So they'll be doing that again. I know, I think Foot Locker is doing something to honor my dad. Um, I don't know. I think probably favorite one where I wasn't there. Um, I know he wore that like ridiculous silver suit, the aluminum foil looking thing. And he had walked around the court in it. And like around, around halftime of the game, they ended up calling him and telling him he had to change because it was messing with all the cameras. <laughs> it was so reflective. I definitely had, I don't know. I was like a huge, huge, huge dork in high school. So it was kind of weird that like the next day I came in and like all these people wanted to talk to me about his suit. I'm like, you haven't talked to me like the entire time we've been here, but okay. <laughs> he actually had it framed um, and it's, he, had, uh, he opened up a restaurant with um, Doc Rivers, Scott Hastings and Randy Whitman back in 88. It was like a whole chain. There's still one um, in Atlanta. There's another one in Charlotte, but he, that suit is actually framed with the article that Sports Illustrated wrote about it and it's hanging up in that restaurant still. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I know that Spurs coach Greg Popovich means a lot to your family and was really important to your dad. Can you tell us about that relationship? A big part of who my dad was, he always liked to be the good guy. Um, I mentioned it in my eulogy um, that even when, you know, we'd be playing a game of basketball when I was like five years old and he never let me win in anything and he would be dunking on me and be like, another basket for the good guys. Like, he was always the good guys. And I think that it was really cool for Popovich to like feel so comfortable playing almost like the villain to his like protagonist. Um, but obviously, I mean, the relationship over the years, it's so funny to me that people actually thought that Popovich was being like a jackass to him. Like he's not, he's such, he's such a good man. He really, really is like everything that you think he is, but like he absolutely is. I finally got to, meet him for the first time actually when the Spurs were in town um on New Year's Day it was my first game back um covering the Hawks after my dad had passed and I he went to the funeral um but the cool thing that he actually they had a game that night and so he flew in just for a couple hours and sat in the back and was really quiet and as soon as it was over he had to fly back to I think they were playing in Houston that night so I didn't get a chance to talk to him then but they didn't. He, I don't even think he did post game availability after the game, but he ended up coming out and talking to me and my brother for about twenty minutes or so. I got a hug from him. I feel like it changed me as a person. <laughs> I feel like I'm a better person now. How special was it to watch your brother Craig Jr. when he was filling in for your dad interviewing Popovich? Good God! Like that is 
one of one of the most significant moments like for our family and for me my dad didn't know it was going to happen ahead of time he called me the night before just because it was also a spur of the moment and it was Popovich's idea to do it and originally they were going to uh, record it before the game and so that's what I was anticipating and apparently once he got there Pop was like nope let's do it during the game just like your dad and so my poor brother I mean, at this, he's been covering the Falcons for a long time, and he has a very good amount of media experience at this point. He's been lead editor at a site in Atlanta for about five or six years now. Uh, so he wasn't, like, totally new to it, but that was definitely his first television interview. And the fact that the Spurs were actually, I think, down to um, – who are they playing? Dallas? And they were actually, like, down in the third quarter. Like, it was just – so much pressure for him and he said he just was all of a sudden like out on the court and there were cameras in his face but I think he did a really good job yeah and, what a moment oh yeah like my dad was crying for sure it's been seven straight NBA finals now for LeBron but with the extent of Love's injury becoming known on Valentine's Day which actually sounds like a joke <laughs> and he might not return until a couple of weeks before the playoffs begin do you think that the Cavaliers are still the favorites to reach the finals in the East I do. It's LeBron. I think they'll be okay. I am not that huge on Kevin Love. I know he's having a really good year this year. Um, I think that people maybe inflated his value a little bit just because, I mean, he was really good on that one possession, obviously, but at the same time, he was also a big part of them starting out down in that series. Um, I think that they, I don't know that they would have won game. I think it took him having that concussion and having to take him out of the equation and then figuring out how to work him back in for them to actually like gel at all. Cause they were floundering out there and he looked a little bit lost during the first couple of games of that series. So I don't, I mean, I know he's obviously an important part of that team, but LeBron does a pretty good job of, you know, knowing what he needs to get out of his teammates and actually getting that out of them or just, you know, single-handedly taking over, a game when he needs to. I think they'll be okay. I think experience, especially in a seven-game series, there's nothing more important than experience, and nobody has more experience right now than LeBron. Yeah, he's gonna probably have to play even heavier minutes. But I think I think you're right that the ex- playoff experience and finals experience is really gonna go a long way. I had the Celtics finishing second in the East preseason. To me, they kind of remind me a little bit of where the Hawks were a couple of years ago, though. Like, I think they just seemed like a team that was going to win a lot of games. They're well-coached and a lot of, like, underachieving, guys, overachieving guys who play really well together and know their roles. But I don't know how well that's going to translate to playoff success. Yeah, another team in the East, the Raptors, they were doing extremely well at the beginning of the season. But they've had a lot of issues on the offensive end. They were leading in offensive efficiency through the 18th of January, but they ranked 24th since. Do you think the Serge Ibaka acquisition solves their issues? I don't know that it solves it. For me, judging where teams were going to be this year, I think I put a lot of weight into what they did with their big men, just because there's a lot of shuffling around in the league. And so many other teams got like so much better in the front court, especially you know in the East, you have to get through LeBron. You have to have size. You have to have a decent front court. That's why I'm a little surprised that – Washington has been doing this well. I don't know how sustainable that is, but I didn't think that the Raptors did enough to 
improve their front court to be in a better position to beat the Cavs than they were the year before. So I don't know if that fixes it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he works in there. I know he's not the same player that he was a few years ago, and I think that people maybe forget that kind of like when Horford went to Boston and people were for some reason surprised that he wasn't getting double digit rebounds when he hasn't really done that in about five years or so. So it'll be interesting to see like how much he actually plays like down in the post. The Eastern Conference playoff landscape right now, it seems to be separated into a couple tiers between the top half and the bottom half. Both of them are pretty close. And especially with the trouble that we discussed, the love injury and and also still dealing with the J.R. Smith injury for Cleveland that could knock them down a peg, at least in the regular season. Although you did mention it does feel sort of like two years ago when Atlanta won a ton of games and didn't really factor into the playoff landscape too heavily. There are some hot teams in the NBA right now. You mentioned Boston, but also the Wizards have been doing really well, especially since Christmas. Do you think that a team like that or even Atlanta could make a splash in the playoffs, surprise some people and get through to the Eastern Conference Finals? No, it's just all going to come down to seeding. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a funky bracket, I think, because there are a lot of teams that could beat pretty much any team other than Cleveland. There are a lot of teams that match up strangely against each other. There are a lot of like weird rivalries going on. I know that Boston and Washington have been getting pretty heated. I know that even the Hawks and the, and the Celtics have some beef going, too. I love like the little uh, Schroeder IT rivalry. That one is super fun to watch. Um, and it got pretty physical last year in the playoffs. So I don't know. There are a lot of teams that are really hungry. I think it's going to probably come down to coaching a lot too, though. Yeah, I think actually a, a Boston versus Washington matchup in the playoffs would be really interesting. They had the little post-game scuffle early on in the season where Jay Crowder sort of like booped John Wall's <laughs> nose. And then the next game they played against each other, the Wizards came to the arena dressed in all black and they called it their funeral game. With Atlanta, yeah, there is that sort of rivalry against Boston, especially with Horford switching sides in the offseason. Speaking about the Hawks, we talked about the Hawks with <laughs> K.L. Chenard earlier this season and we Love talked him, a lot way. about the up and down streakiness that they experienced in the early part of their season. There were a lot of question marks around that time about whether Paul Millsap would be on the trading block, especially after they had traded Kyle Korver. According to the Hawks, they've told Paul Millsap that he's not getting traded, which suggests that they're going to try to keep him around in free agency this offseason, which is especially interesting considering what happened last season. They didn't want to deal Al Horford and ran the risk of losing him in the offseason, which they did. As someone who's in Atlanta now, how much is that on the fans' minds? Oh, they're all losing their minds. They're always losing their minds. They lost their minds when Horford walked, but at the same time, I kind of feel like that was always going to happen. I think that maybe a lot of the negotiations were a little bit for show. I mean, he was so great for our franchise, for sure. I mean, the Hawks have the second longest running playoff appearance streak in the league with nine straight years compared to the Spurs with 19 straight years. But every year since he was drafted, we've made the playoffs. But I think even though we've revamped the team a couple times, I think they were kind of starting to figure out that they didn't really know how to build a championship team around him. And, I mean, he's not a young guy. I really like him. I am still rooting for him, even though I'm not rooting for Boston, obviously. 
but I still really like the guy. I was very much okay with us not re-signing him, though. Like, obviously, we didn't get anything for him, which kind of sucks. But at the same time, like, not having that contract on the books isn't nothing either. So that was going to be a lot of money. And that's just Atlanta constantly falls short. Saw in the Super Bowl, too. And he was going to end up getting, like, the entirety of the blame on him if we didn't win a ring at some point during that contract. And that wouldn't really be fair either. I know that he's getting a lot of fan love up in Boston, so that's good for him. But, no, the fans here, I will try not to piss them off because apparently I've done that a few times by saying, (laughs) by mentioning the fact that Marcin Gortat got more all-star votes than Paul Millsap last year, which is insane. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're passionate. The ones that are engaged are super, super, super engaged. Maybe a little distrustful, too. It's still, it's new ownership. It's a new coach. He's still, I mean, not super new, but this is what, his fourth season now? Once we signed Dwight, everything that they did after that kind of made sense. That, like, each move that they made felt like what I thought they were going to end up doing. Um, They were ready to go with that Teague trade as soon as the season ended. I think they had a game plan. Like, as a person... Covering them, like, I like to try to stay a little bit positive. As a fan, like, I'm actually putting my faith in it. I think Millsap wants to stay. I think he likes it here. Um, I think that over the past couple of years, we've made it pretty clear that, you know, going to Atlanta is a good career move. Like, we make guys look really good. We turned Corver into a god. We got Baysmore for nothing. Like, the Lakers didn't even want to sign him for $2 million. That's why he turned down more money. He turned down a higher contract out in L.A. to stay in Atlanta. I don't know. We're doing a pretty good job of finding players that are maybe underappreciated. And as soon as we picked up Millsap that year, that was the first moment where I'm like, okay, this is actually a good direction. I like where we're heading. Um, I was a pretty big fan of his in Utah. Just he ended up on my fantasy team one year and I was like super paying attention to him. And I really liked this game. I don't think that he's taking this as personally as people are maybe thinking he is because he's just, he's the most professional guy ever. And it made sense to at least see what they could get for him during the off season. It made so much sense. I didn't think there was any chance that they weren't going to at least entertain some trade offers this year, especially after Horford walks. The fan base would have retaliated if they hadn't at least like tried to move him and like risk having both of them walk two years in a row. But at the same time, I didn't think they were going to move him unless they got like a really good offer for him. I think right. he wants to stay. I don't think that he's like butthurt about all of the trade rumors or anything. I think he gets it. Yeah, Millsap seems like he's in a good situation. He he seems fairly happy. Switching over to the West, the playoff landscape, especially between four and seven, it's really tight with the Jazz, Clippers, Grizzlies, and Thunder all close together. And um, the eighth seed is up for grabs. How do you think those seeds might play out? I don't even know, man. I didn't even do a pre... Like, I did preseason rankings for the Eastern Conference, and I looked at the Western Conference, and I'm like, I'm only going to end up looking like a dumbass if I do this. Like, especially, um, I don't know, within even certain divisions, there are a lot of, like, fun teams that it'd be fun to see them, you know, make the eighth seed. But there's just so, like, so much inconsistency going on, so many injuries. Like, who the hell knows what's going to happen at this point? Yeah, for me, the more intriguing storyline in that whole conference is with all the injuries, you don't know what you're going to get. Like you mentioned, Chris Paul now will be out for a little bit. The Clippers have been playing well this past week and a half or so without him, but their schedule is really tough coming up. Recently, they took the fourth seed from Utah, who hasn't been in the playoffs with this young squad, but a lot of people feel like finally it's their time. And then 
you go to the eighth seed and there are teams that are way under 500 that are clearly within striking distance. I look at the standings and you could even make a case that the Lakers aren't completely out of it yet making the playoffs. It's crazy. I guess that makes it exciting though, right? That you you don't know who's going to be in the playoffs. I mean, it does. And I don't like the whole, you know, contend or tank mentality. There's a lot of middle ground there. And that's where like, it's where you build stuff. Like, even if you're not necessarily, like, even if you know you're not going to win the title, like, it doesn't mean that you have to tank. Like, Mm -hmm. even if they're going to get eliminated in the first round, it doesn't mean that it still wouldn't be significant for some of these franchises to get that eight seed. Yeah, the Blazers is an interesting case because they could have a rematch with the Warriors. They probably would get blown out, but could be good for fan morale, possibly, maybe even people around the team to have another a second consecutive playoff appearance, make a little bit more money for the franchise, get McCollum more playoff minutes under his belt and the rest of the guys. I don't know. And, and the Nuggets are another exciting team that could be fun to see them face the Warriors. We'll be tuning in like you will. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I just have one last question for you. It's something we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, and I think a lot of fans, NBA supporters, writers as well, have been noticing the increasing outspokenness and activism on the part of players, coaches, even some executives. I ask you, who's also someone who's very outspoken, about light matters. You choke around a lot on Twitter, but also more serious social and political issues. What do you think is behind that? Clearly, the NBA is leading the way among professional sports leagues. Do you like to see that? What are your thoughts on the increasing outspokenness? I do like it. I also don't like the fact that we necessarily are forcing them to have an opinion if they don't want to talk about it. I think it's kind of interesting that now it seems like some of the go-to questions in pressers are political instead of sports-related. So I don't think that, you know, the the response to the whole, like, stick to sports thing shouldn't be like, well, you have to say something if you don't want to. But it's good that we're allowing them. It's kind of a trend that started, you know, with what LeBron did. Like, he finally, he wrote a championship narrative for himself. Like, he kind of took his career into his own hands. I think a lot of them maybe feel, like, a little bit inspired by that, too, mm-hmm. to actually, like, have, they find, like, they're all finally finding their voices. I know Mello was doing it a lot too with some of the stuff he's been working on. And plus he always gets like super inspired before the Olympics too. It's good to see them actually, you know, we've just profited off off of like their blood and sweat and tears for so long. And it's nice to see them actually like realizing the platform that they have and utilizing it. And they want to speak out, then that's awesome. If I had to pick three things to pinpoint for the reason behind the trend, I would say the climate just the owners and the executives seem like they're a lot more open and willing to hear this type of stuff versus NFL ownership and MLB ownership. Also, social media, I think, has been huge in giving players a voice directly to fans. And then also star players speaking out, like you said. I think those are the main things. Absolutely. They don't need journalists anymore to speak for them. Like They can absolutely speak for themselves whenever they want now. Yeah. It really was a pleasure, though, hearing from you. We followed you online, but finally we got to meet virtually. And great, just hearing your insight, and we appreciate the time you took. No problem.